toughness. Toughness. Would toughness be a quality that describes you? The dictionary defines toughness as the quality of being strong and not easily broken or torn. Physical or emotional strength that allows someone to endure strain and hardship. Toughness. Well, in order to pass the training regimen that is required to become a special ops soldier in the U.S. military, you have to have toughness about you. In fact, toughness, in one way or another, is necessary to be qualified for any of the skilled assignments that each special ops unit possesses. The training programs for these special ops units, be it the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, or the Marine Corps, push each aspiring soldier to human limits, so much that the average human being cannot pass these tests. They cannot withstand it. Uh, they aren't tough enough. If you research each of these fitness tests and the mental competency exams for these special ops units, you'll discover that you have to possess the complete package of toughness. You see, in these training programs, there's the test of muscle exhaustion. Each of these training programs will max you out physically in every exercise you attempt, from pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, swimming, running, and a whole lot more. Then there's the lack of sleep, which also creates mental exhaustion. Each of the training programs also have long days and longer nights, which amount to little or no sleep for long periods of time. This alone, physically and mentally, is demanding and does not allow their bodies to heal and rest properly after extreme physical exhaustion. And then there's training in the miserable water and the harsh temperatures. No matter which school you choose, you will be subject to cold, wet, damp, and dirty environments, as well as hot, humid, and dry locations, including high altitudes and jungles. And then, there's what would get me out of the race really quick. The challenge of only having minimal food eaten daily. Some training programs, like the Army Rangers, Add another area to challenge the will to keep moving, one meal a day and sometimes less. There will be days in training where you do not have time to eat, but you will still have to keep moving and shooting. This challenges the body to conserve energy through long days and nights and teaches the soldier to eat well when given the opportunity. But all these tests of toughness so far have only been centered around the physical fitness aspect of the training. This doesn't even account for the mental competency or aptitude that some of these units require of their candidates. Some of these special ops units require the physical stamina of an Ironman athlete, while also having emergency training all at the same time, emergency medical training, that is. They are required to be tough enough both to 
fight the opposition, fulfill certain life-risking mission objectives, while also medically treating the wounded in the heat of battle. Uh, take, for example, the Air Force para-jumpers, or PJs. The PJs are responsible for providing emergency and life-saving services to airmen and soldiers and civilians, both in peacetime and in combat environments. Uh, when a plane goes down in the jungle or the ocean, PJs are there to find and save the pilots and crew. PJ specialists rescue and medically treat downed military personnel all over the world. These highly trained experts take part in every aspect of the mission and are skilled parachutists, scuba divers, and rock climbers. And they are even Arctic trained in order to access any environment to save a life when they're called to do so. These highly trained PJs or pararescue men, they really live up to the motto that they hold to, that others may live. Toughness, firmness, soundness. Toughness that exists so that others may live. Friends, this morning, we're not about to embark on a special ops unit training regimen, so take a deep breath. We're not going to stop and go outside. But we are starting a new sermon series in the book of Titus, which is sort of like that. It's a small, power-packed book of the New Testament that contains the search and rescue mission that God gave a man that would require physical and spiritual toughness. So if you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, if you're using the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 579. Titus chapter 1. The book of Titus is one of the most straightforward and concise letters of the New Testament. Beyond Philemon and Jude and the second and third epistles of John, Titus is one of the shortest letters we find in the scriptures. So you can maybe time yourself this afternoon, but most likely you will be able to read the entire book of Titus in seven to ten minutes. So maybe take a challenge to see if you can read it coherently and clearly in seven to ten minutes. And this letter doesn't really propose any unique or difficult theological questions you have to unpack, which can make it very accessible to read, especially for a new Christian. Uh, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul. So if you drop down, look with me, let's parachute down into chapter 1, verse 1 real quick. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul is the author. As a man authorized by Jesus to be sent out as one of his chosen apostles, Paul was used of God to spread the gospel all over the Mediterranean world during the first century. Uh, he wrote this letter most likely around AD 62 to 64, uh, which would have been the time period uh, after 1 Timothy, or probably sometime before 2 Timothy. It's most likely written before his, or between his first and second Roman imprisonments. Uh, after spending a little time ministering on the small island of Crete after his third missionary journey, uh, he would eventually write to one of his spiritual children in the faith. 
Titus. You'll notice there in chapter 1, verse 4, that Titus is the primary recipient of this letter. And Paul writes to him, uh, not as kind of a dry lecture, not as kind of like homeroom rules for your first week of school, but out of a heart of endearment, a heart that overflowed with a strong spiritual bond because of their common faith in Jesus Christ. Look with me in verse 4. He says to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. You see, Paul had a special love for Titus, probably because either God used Paul to see Titus come to faith. In other words, God used Paul's ministry as preaching as an example to lead him to Christ. Or perhaps Paul had just been a pivotal mentor in his life. Uh, Paul had known Titus for a long time. Uh, They met, we see at least in the 8040s, because Titus shows up in the book of Galatians. So if we use that time period, if he met sometime around AD 45, and he's writing a letter in AD 62 to 64, they've known each other for almost two decades. Uh, These guys go back. They've had a lot of memories made together. Uh, In fact, you can read 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians contains the most references to Titus more than any other letter in the New Testament. Either way, similar to the way Paul wrote to Timothy in the previous two epistles of 1 and 2 Timothy, the book of Titus is written with the aim of addressing many of the same issues. Church leadership, church order, and how the gospel transforms literally everything in our life. We'll get there shortly in chapter 2. But how the gospel transforms everything about us in our life. And make no mistake about it, the book of Titus is specifically aimed at instructing one individual man that was called of God to fulfill a very difficult mission for King Jesus on the remote island of Crete. You see, this was a mission that Paul knew would take a special person to embark on. In order to succeed in all these ministry objectives, Paul had to find some of his best men for this mission. A special person had been uniquely prepared for such a tough task in front of them. It would take a first century special ops soldier of Jesus Christ. A soldier of Jesus Christ that had what it would take to parachute down, if you will into the gospel ministry there in Crete. Because in Crete, the harvest was plentiful. The opportunities for gospel good were abounding. But so were the needs of faithful laborers to till and to work the ground. You see, though God had saved the people through Paul's ministry on the island of Crete, these people needed strong, Not puny, not weak, not spineless, but strong and godly leaders who would provide faithful biblical shepherding amongst the sheep. And once these leaders were put in place, the sheep could then in turn grow into godliness, maturity, be the men and women God had made them to be. You see, in order for the work to continue, 
In order for Christ's church to be built up around the globe, including on this remote island, God would have to raise up and make ready a man for such a time as this. Indeed, this was a mission that even a seasoned minister like Paul knew would require a whole lot more than a nice personality and a novice level of biblical wisdom. This mission would require vigor and zeal, but also a steel spine of biblical convictions and godly character that had been tested through some difficult trials in ministry. In reality, Paul knew it would take a man of God that embodied many of the same qualities that God had produced in his own life. Qualities like integrity, faithfulness, endurance, self-control, courage, and a firm commitment to God's word, both in word and in deed. And under Paul's leadership and in God's sovereign providence, Titus had fit the bill for what this high and important calling would require on the island of Crete. Paul had preached and planted the seeds of God's word. Churches were formed for the glory of God. A church like this, just over or under a year ago. But like any worthwhile ambition for ministry, there was still much work left to be done. Beloved, the task was still unfinished. Since Titus had traveled with Paul and had been instrumental in ministering among the saints in Corinth, evidently Titus had proven himself as a faithful brother and a fruitful partner and co-worker in the gospel ministry. So with all those introductory remarks out of the way, what was the mission God gave Titus to fulfill? Well, please follow with me as we read the marching orders that he was given. And I'm going to read all three chapters of Titus because it only takes seven to ten minutes to read. And then afterwards we'll look closely at our time together at verses one to four. Please follow with me as I start reading in Titus chapter one, verse one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. 
He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men, to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, 
to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos in their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. This morning, if you're taking notes, I have three questions that will serve as an outline for us this morning, and I'll walk through the questions one at a time. First question, before we learn about Titus's mission, Titus was not a uh, me and Jesus got our own thing going. Titus first, before he could exercise authority, was a man under authority. So that then begs the question, what was Paul's mission? From God. Paul's the one who wrote him. Paul's the one who instructed him. So first of all, what was Paul's mission from God? Answer. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ who preached the gospel and established local churches that would obey the Great Commission even after he was gone. Look with me again at Titus 1, verses 1 to 3. Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. You see, when you read the book of Acts, Amidst all the powerful and miraculous things that we find in this early narrative of the New Testament, we discover how God, 
the God we've worshipped this morning, the God we've sung about this morning, the perfect and true God, had chosen a very unlikely man for an eye-opening and jaw-dropping mission that would turn the world upside down for King Jesus. You'll notice starting in Acts chapters 7 and 8, we're introduced to this highly unlikely man whose name is Saul. Saul of Tarsus, to be exact. Saul of Tarsus was once a proud, self-righteous, and highly trained Jewish Pharisee who thought he was honoring God. In other words, he was doing God a favor. He was like God's MVP in his own eyes by arresting and approving of the execution of Christians. And beloved, it was this man of all people that would become God's chosen instrument to spread the saving message of the gospel to the unbelieving world. Maybe similar today, we might think of an extreme or radicalized terrorist group wreaking havoc and hostility towards others to defend some kind of narcissistic or political or religious ideology. I mean, ask yourself the question, would ISIS or the Taliban today be one of the top places you think God would raise up the next Christian preacher to reach the next generation? Well, as you read the book of Acts, specifically Acts chapter 9, we see the risen Lord Jesus Christ summoning this arrogant man in all his prideful, narcissistic zeal to the ground. This once proud man with an upright heart that was right in his own eyes was brought to his knees in fear and trembling. Friends, pride always goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But God still shows mercy to those who've been humbled. You see, Saul of Tarsus was awakened that day. The blindfold came off. The hard heart became soft. The proud was humbled. He saw his own sin in a way he had never seen it before, and he saw his need for a Savior. And then the Lord sent a man named Ananias to instruct Paul on what plans God had for him before he was born. Or the mission, you might say. God had called Paul to fulfill with his new life in Christ. We read in Acts 9, verses 15 to 16. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You see, from that point forward, all the way to when this letter was written, in AD 62 to around AD 64, Paul had accumulated over two decades of ministry under his belt. He's got a pretty fat resume, folks. He doesn't lack experience for this task. Paul had traveled all across the Mediterranean world to obey the mission God gave him on that dusty road on Damascus that day. After his third missionary journey, as he was sailing towards Rome, he stopped along an island called Crete. You can read Acts 27 sometimes to read that in 
more expanded context. Crete is located about 100 miles south of the Greek mainland and measures about 3,200 square miles. For historical context, we're told that under the reign of Emperor Tiberius, who reigned from about AD 14 to AD 37, Crete was a land, it was a place where exiles would escape to when they were persecuted and pushed out of Rome. So, over time, this island became a melting pot of sorts. You had pagans, you had former Romans, and you even had a Jewish population mixed in there. Uh, You'll notice in Titus 1, verses 10 to 14, we'll look at next week, that there were those of the circumcision party. There were Jews there too. So this was not just kind of a one-size-fits-all. This is a melting pot of cultures that are colliding together, and that's exactly where God sent Paul, and eventually he would send Titus. Uh, Through the course of time during the Roman period, about 20 towns or 20 cities were established on the island. And over time, these communities uh, became fertile ground for gospel ministry through Paul's ministry. Uh, People came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Churches were formed. They were planted. And the island rapidly, quickly became littered and saturated with Christians. But friends, Paul would have to go. Paul's calling from God, his mission from God, had assignments that prevented him from staying in any one place for too long. He had to go because it's better to obey God rather than please man. But in time, word got back to Paul. Paul cared about all churches, all shapes and sizes. And he got word that there were difficulties on the island. There were problems beginning to rise in the households of families. So as any good pastor, any good leader, any good father, any good parent for that matter, you get concerned and you want to do something. So what did Paul do? Well, his circumstances prevented him from being able to to go back. I mean, they didn't have Delta back then, by the way. They didn't have an Uber, okay? You had to sail a long ways to get to this island. Paul was also probably in his 60s, and the energy needed to go back to Crete and fulfill the tough task ahead were probably beyond his abilities now. He wasn't a young whippersnapper or a spring chicken anymore. Sometimes age is the best thing that can happen to us because it humbles us of our mortality. And Paul didn't try to pretend to be someone that he wasn't. You see, travel was pretty difficult those days. Paul had gotten older. The mission propelled him to go forward. So someone else had to fill the gap. Someone else had to catch the baton. Someone else had to get under center and get in the huddle. Well, what did Paul do? Well, he did what every wise and faithful leader should do. He prayerfully and carefully selected a man that God had been forming for many years, decades in fact, to accomplish this tough task. God's always up to something, beloved. He's always forming us for things that right now would terrify you and I. 
But friends, he'll take as long as he wants to prepare us for the most difficult task ahead so that when you accomplish it, God gets the glory. Friends, Paul instructed Titus, a man he loved, a man he cared for, and he said, young man, stay right where you're at. Finish the job I started and carry on the gospel work until God tells you to leave. Which leads to question number two. What was Titus's mission from God? What was Titus's mission from God? Answer, Titus was an apostolic delegate, you might say a representative, who preached and taught with authority as he was sent to Crete and basically taught and led in whatever of mission orders Paul gave him. So what were those things he was told to do? Well, you just read the whole book. Here's a summary. Establish biblical church leadership, teach sound doctrine, confront false teachers, and shepherd believers on how to live God-glorifying lives that commended the gospel. Friends, have you ever had one of those moments where a buddy of yours or a family member helped you get a job? And after you got it, you're like, hey, you pulled a quick one on me. Why on earth did I take this job? I mean, you made it sound like it was the best thing ever. Replacing you has been a nightmare. No. But maybe you're sitting there and you're twiddling your thumbs and maybe work's kind of like, eh, not really sure. It's good weeks and bad weeks, but let's say you're having one of those low weeks and you're going, why am I here? What purpose do I have? Well, Paul, because he's a good leader, he likes to over-communicate. He tells Titus exactly why I left you in this job description, Titus. Thankfully, he tells us why he left this dear brother behind on this island without him. Look at Titus 1, verse 5. It's kind of a thesis statement for the whole book. Paul basically lays out the overarching reason for why he left Titus back in Crete. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. To say it plainly, there were sheep on the island of Crete that were without good and faithful shepherds. There were students in the classroom without good teachers or administrators. There were athletes without good coaches, you might say. There were employees without good managers. There were sick patients without trained and caring physicians. Friends, there were real Christians from baby Christians to oak tree Christians on this island, and all of them needed loving and strong biblical leadership. Friends, if you're here today and you don't think you need Christians who are more mature than you, you're deceived. If you don't think you need to join a local church to obey Jesus, first of all, you are deceived. If you don't feel like you can submit under any leaders anywhere that are qualified according to Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, you're in sin. That's what the Bible teaches. Christians roaming around, doing their own thing for Jesus, are like sheep without a shepherd, and that's a dangerous place to be. So friends, if you're not a member of a local church, I want to encourage you to think about what church you can join and what leaders you can submit under that are ultimately submitting to Jesus for your welfare and your good. Friends, that's what Paul told Timothy. I mean, Titus, he told Timothy that too. 
But Titus, there's real Christians there. But they're running around like chickens with their heads cut off. They need strong leadership, brother. And so he tells them to put these men in place. In verses 6 to 9, we'll look at next week, he lays out the qualifications, what the job resume needs to look like for these leaders. And then in verses 10 to 16, he explains why solid or sound leaders were needed to shepherd these churches. After establishing the right kind of leaders, he moves on from leaders to good teaching. So you need the right men in place, but then you need to get the right teaching in place that would spread amongst the churches. So look in Titus 2. Titus 2 verse 1. It's kind of a hinge verse for the book as well that kind of sets up the rest of the letter. In Titus 2 verse 1, Paul continues a common theme that runs throughout Paul's letter regarding Titus's primary charge. He tells Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Friends, what is sound doctrine? We don't use those words often. We say that was a good sermon. That was an encouraging message. Those are all fine words to say. Let's get this one back in our vocabulary. Sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is saying what God said while accurately teaching and encouraging others to obey what God commanded. Sound doctrine is saying what God said while accurately teaching and encouraging others to obey what God commanded. Uh, this sound or faithful teaching is to be the ongoing nourishment for these Christians as they were being bombarded with threats and temptations on every side. False teachers speaking in their Left ear, upsetting whole households, while godless and pagan friends or neighbors were alluring them in the other ear to no longer live a holy life for Jesus. They were getting in both ears. Bad teaching, bad influences. Bad teaching, bad influences. Friends, we are all tempted to heed either one of those, and sometimes both at the same time. And that's why you need faithful shepherds that can give you sound teaching and instruct you to find more faithful friends. Like bumper cars getting smacked from one angle to the other at the fairgrounds. These young Christians in Crete were in trouble as they were without the spiritual protection, the spiritual covering of godly leaders. Uh, they were walking aimless in their Christian lives without any clear biblical direction. You see, Paul knew from all his years of ministry what every Christian, including me and all a hundred of us, if we're ever going to grow up to maturity and make disciples of Jesus. Paul knew this. All Christians need godly leaders who will guide and protect them. I'm going to say that three times so it sticks a little bit. All Christians, none are exempt, need godly leaders who will guide and protect them. And Christians need, and I say all Christians, need solid biblical teaching to keep them grounded and stable in the faith. 
godly leaders and sound doctrine. Friends, let's have a little exercise here. Raise your hand if you've ever experienced food poisoning before. A little higher. We have a healthier church than normal, okay? Raise your hand if you remember the food that you ate that gave you food poisoning. Don't say your mom's dinner or your dad's, you know, best take at Thanksgiving. Okay, so you remember it. Think about it right now. Don't puke, but just think about it. Now raise your hand if you remember the restaurant of where you ate that food. Drew remembers. We got to see you in the back. Okay, okay. Now ask yourself, for all my hand raisers, how long was it before you ever went back to that restaurant? Did you ever go back? I'm sure that experience was so bad that you began to tell other people, do not go there. I don't care what letter on the sticker of what rating they have. It's a lie. I'll never go eat those tacos again. Ever. I would imagine if we've experienced any type of food poisoning, and I'm talking about the poisoning that stays with you all day and all night, we don't want to ever go back to that restaurant, and we sure don't want people we love to go back to that restaurant. Well, friends, food poisoning, as bad as it is, It ain't the only experience we need to avoid. We should avoid, all of us, opening up our lives to unsound teaching, unhealthy teaching, food poisoning that someone used the Bible to mix their bowl with, but it's unfaithful teaching. It might even be watered-down teaching that removes the sharp edges of the Bible. When the Bible says that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, it's not a plastic picnic fork, folks. It's going to sting. The Spirit of God comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, of judgment. It pierces between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, rightly dividing the thoughts and intentions of my heart. Friends, you don't ever want to dumb down or dull the sword of the Spirit. Stay away from teaching that waters down solid biblical teaching and softens the blow of what the sharp edge of Scripture teaches. And friends, sometimes the teaching is so outright unbiblical, it might even be demonic in nature. Friends, that's why the most important thing you should look for in a local church is what they teach. The most important thing you should look for in a local church is what they teach, their statement of faith. If they don't have one, there's a red flag. If they don't openly advertise it, there's another flag. If half the members don't even know what it is, there's another flag. And if the senior pastor doesn't know what it says, there's another red flag. It's not how fun the children's ministry is that ultimately matters. It's not how excellent the musicians play on Sundays. It's not how nice the building is or how many years the church has been in the community that is most important. The most important thing about a church is what the church says they believe about God's word and whether or not they teach and obey what they say they believe. Even a good statement of faith on a church website means almost nothing if you don't actually 
obey what that statement of faith teaches. We're a gospel-believing and a gospel-obeying church by the grace of God. Imperfect? Absolutely. Can we all grow? Sure. Are there ways that we have areas that we are just still eating junk food Christianity in one spoon, you know? Never mind, I was going to talk about ice cream illustration, and then everyone went and eat ice cream, and that, that's not what I'm trying to do. But you know what I'm getting at. Sound teaching, good food, healthy teaching. That's what we should look for in a local church. Friends, this is what Paul told Titus he must be concerned about. Titus had walked through the kitchen pantry, and he found all the junk food that was being stocked in the pantries. He threw it out, and he started cooking filet mignons. He started giving them Ruth's Chris in your living room. Good food for God's sheep. Indeed, he was a man on a mission looking for God's most wanted men who would shepherd the flock. And he was a man on a mission that kept the main thing, the main thing. He was to teach, teach, and teach some more sound doctrine that flowed from the gospel of Jesus Christ. CCBC, as we embark on biblical studies this fall, uh, this means we ought to be praying for each Bible study leader who teaches. Pray for Mindy Clark as she leads the women's Bible study most weeks through the book of Philippians. Pray that she teaches sound doctrine. Pray for the ladies that will lead those small groups in those studies. Pray for Mindy's preparation and pray for God to raise up more ladies that would teach alongside her. Pray that the women's Bible studies this year would be an endless buffet for the sisters and unbelievers who come and to treasure God's word and be saved. We're also starting back our children's and adult equipping classes this week. Uh, pray for Dorinda Smith and Leslie Chain and the volunteers who will be teaching our kids in that ministry this upcoming year. You know, our hope and goal for the children entrusted to us by King Jesus in this ministry is we hope that we would feed them solid food from God's word. Yes, we got to get down to their level. We all got to start somewhere, right? We need to speak clear, plain, intelligible words to where people are at. But friends, I don't care if it's a five-year-old or a 75-year-old. We don't want to water it down or oversimplify it so they're never challenged. Friends, we want babies to be grown up to men and women. We don't want toothpicks. We want oak trees in this church. And friends, we need to feed them solid food as early as we can. I think we need to agree with author Ted Tripp, which might be championed in a lot of T-shirts and handouts probably in the coming year. He says this, give your children big truths they will grow into rather than light explanations they will grow out of. Let me say that again. Give your children big truths they will grow into rather than light explanations they will grow out of. Pray for Alan Williams. Pray for Jansen Lester. They teach on Wednesday night, adult equipping class, on what the church is to be according to the Bible. Friends, please pray for me. I covet, I am jealous, I am desirous of your prayers as your pastor who preaches here most often. And pray for the men who will serve alongside me as elders. Pray that we would be men with steel backbones and tender hearts 
that teach sound doctrine. Friends, do you see the beauty and wisdom of God already shining from the pages of Scripture in the book of Titus? You see, the apostle Paul was greatly used of God to see these churches planted, to see these pagans converted and these Jews humbled. But Paul, for different reasons, he couldn't stay. God called him to minister elsewhere where there was a gospel need. But friends, the Lord had raised up, prepared, and sent another man to carry the mission. Brothers and sisters, what a fresh reminder for us all, isn't it? God doesn't need any one of us. That hurts the pride in our hearts, but that frees us, doesn't it? There's only one Savior, and there's no vacancy in the Trinity, beloved. The church will be built even if CCBC goes down. That's the kind of confidence we have, that even if we are replaced because God moves us or we age and can't do the same things we used to, or maybe we die, the work of the gospel goes on. God may use you for a season to lead a prayer group. God may use you to lead a Bible study. God may use you to lead a service team or be an elder or a deacon for a season of time. For everything, there is a season and a time under heaven. But friends, God never lacks soldiers in his army. He needs no draft. He's got it all figured out. In fact, he's got it rigged, but we won't go there for now. He's got it all figured out. He's made us with a purpose. He knows where the faithful are. He's preparing them for the tough roads ahead. Wow, we got an amazing God, don't we? We don't have to update him. We don't have to text him. We don't have to say, hey, read my Facebook feed. Uh Uh-uh. He's got it all under control. He declares the end from the beginning and the beginning to the end. Wow. Friends, we are all tools in the hands of the Redeemer. We're hammers wrenches in God's heavenly shed and God glorifies himself by using a variety of tools for a season of time. God used Paul in some mighty amazing ways but God had a unique purpose for Titus too when Paul would be gone. Friends this should humble us. It's a good old spoonful of humility once again that even though we die and go on to be with Christ God's work God's mission goes on. His church will be built, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Author Andreas Kostenberger put it this way, ultimately the fate of the gospel doesn't rest on any one human messenger. No matter how important or influential, its victory is assured by its own inherent power. Man. Paul understood this truth, and that's why he mentored. That's why he discipled men like Timothy and Titus. He did not view his ministry as a preaching point. He viewed his ministry as an opportunity to train the next generation. Paul knew that the work of the gospel would move on even after Paul was gone. 
Well, Paul wrote to Titus, but this letter is for the churches throughout church history, even to a church like us today. It was written to Titus, but for us, even at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, which leads to our third and final question. Why can God be trusted with the mission he has given to us? Why can God be trusted with the mission he's given to us? We've we talked about Paul's mission. We've talked about Titus's mission. What about us? I think we can glean at least two reasons from this opening greeting for why God can be trusted with the mission he has given to us. Number one, God's word transforms every sinner God calls to himself in salvation. God's word transforms every sinner God calls to himself in salvation. Notice again Titus 1, verse 1, of how Paul describes the connection. Did you see it? between his apostolic preaching and teaching ministry and the end result of those who would believe. They're interconnected. It's an unbreakable chain. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Brothers and sisters, God's unchangeable truth has the power to change what is wicked and wrong with us. God's unchangeable truth has the power to change what is wicked and wrong with us. God's word is pure and undefiled. It's good food for our lost souls. It unshackles the chains of slavery to sin and gives us freedom to serve God with a heart that actually loves him delights in him, treasures him. Friends, Paul also had a big view of God's sovereignty and salvation. He knew that unless God had chosen to save some sinners before the foundation of the earth, no one on planet earth would ever be saved. Did you notice what he calls those who he would primarily minister to? He says, those who believe are God's elect, or God's chosen people. You see, Paul believed from the very core of his being that he couldn't save sinners. No matter how passionate he was when he preached, only God can transform the heart. No matter how many tears he shed at the doorstep with the gospel tracts, Only God can cause someone to be born again. He couldn't manipulate people into the kingdom. He couldn't trick people into loving Jesus. Paul knew that because he used to kill Christians. No man could persuade a man like Paul to follow Jesus, but the God-man could. Do you remember what Paul said about his conversion experience? In Galatians 1, verses 13 to 16, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But 
when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Who revealed to Paul Jesus? Jesus did. Friends, no one can open the hearts or the doors to anyone's heart if there was a door. Except Jesus. There is a door handle, but it's on the other side. You can't do that. Jesus can. Friends, that is a mighty Savior. That means that you and I right now can go down 4th Street, Rogers Avenue, Chad Cauley, open up our foolish, weak mouths, proclaim the simplicity of the gospel, and somebody's going to be called out of darkness. God's elect. God's people. The wicked and wretched sinners that he has chosen before the foundation of the earth to the praise of his glory. You don't need to manipulate people. You don't need to try to pull a quick one on them. You don't need to get fancy. You don't need to have three years of seminary. You just need to tell them the good old story, that old, old story about how God, who is good, should judge us for our sin and send us to an eternity in hell and yet spares that by sending us his son, Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and he, with the joy set before him, willingly laid down his life on a cross, a rugged tree, and he bore the penalty of our sins that we've committed against God. And then God raised him from the dead, showing that he is the Son of God. He's always been the Son of God, and you must turn from your sins and trust in him if you want eternal life. Friends, no matter if it's a thousand people against you. His sheep will hear his voice. Friends, that's not fatalism. That's bold evangelism. George Whitfield believed this. Charles Spurgeon believed this. John Calvin believed this. Any man, any woman who has a big view of God all of a sudden gets ferocious in evangelism because it's God doing the saving. It's God doing the drawing. It's God doing the transformation, and we get to be used. We pray, we preach, and we watch, and we behold our speaking and saving God. Friends, all of that is wrapped up in verses 1 and 2. That's why he went to the unreached people groups. That's why he sent Titus to Crete. doesn't matter how good of a preacher Paul was or Titus was, how I am, or Jansen is. We're just messengers. We're just instruments. But it's God who does the saving. Amen? That's exciting. You guys can get a little louder as a Baptist church. I don't mind that. You see, friends, it wasn't just learning a few things about God's Word that leads to saving knowledge. It's, it's when we hear God's Word taught preached and explained where we begin to experience God. You see, when you know God's truth, it's an experiential knowledge that changes us from the inside out. It's not a head knowledge. Friends, it's, it's a knowledge that 
makes us godlike. It takes what's wicked and wrong about us and makes it good in his sight. Friends, what is godliness? Godliness is mature Christian character. What is godliness? Godliness is mature Christian character. Godliness is God's spirit dwelling in our hearts, making us more like God's son, Jesus Christ. Friends, this is what the whole book of Titus is really about in one sentence. Having sincere faith in the gospel, being nourished, okay, being fed with sound doctrine, will produce the abiding fruit of godly character. Having sincere faith in the gospel, being nourished with sound doctrine, will produce the abiding fruit of godly character. Uh, to my non-Christian friend, I want to challenge you this morning. Maybe you have some false understandings of Christianity. I've heard people say, well, church people are just behavioral modification. They're suppressing what they really want to do to try to appear righteous before other people. Well, that's hypocrisy and legalism. And that might be true in many churches. But friends, the gospel is not let me impress others and try to impress God. No, the gospel is not let me change a few behaviors so I don't face bad consequences. No, the gospel is not behavioral modification. The gospel will bring about supernatural transformation. It's where God takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. It's where he, he takes us from being rebels to being servants of the Lord Jesus. And friends, that's, that's how Paul viewed himself, right? What did he start off with? Paul, a servant of God. Only God can create a servant's heart that was once proud and arrogant. Friends, that's true of every Christian. Every true Christian is called a servant of God, a servant of the Most High. There's no greater privilege to be called a servant of Christ and a servant of God. Friends, it's the truth. It's the truth of God's word that sets us free. Remember Jesus' words in John 8? So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The second and final reason God can be trusted with the mission he has given us is this. God's unchangeable character emboldens us to remain faithful to him. God's unchangeable character emboldens us to remain faithful to him. Paul continues on in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Look with me again. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. What does Paul mean by the hope of eternal life? Well, hope for the Christian is never wishful thinking. That's not what hope means in the Bible. It's not wishful thinking. Because our faith is rooted in God's unchanging word, the living and active word, our hope is anchored in stable ground. Hope for the Christian, when our faith is rooted in the promises of God's word in the gospel, is confident expectation. Hope is one of the most significant things that changes in us when we go from being children in the darkness to children in the light. We don't put our hope in things that are temporal. Our hope is no longer built on the sands of human wisdom or tradition, the sands of chance or accident, the sands of emotions 
or human efforts. Friends, what did we sing earlier in the service? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That's where our hope is rooted in. What did Paul say in Romans 5? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Friends, ultimately our hope remains strong and steadfast through fiery and difficult trials because God never changes. Notice again what Paul roots our faith and hope in. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. It literally reads the never-lying God. Friends, we serve the truth-telling God. He is a God of truth. And everything he promises to do in the future is more guaranteed to happen than you and I living yesterday. Friends, our sin may creep up in our hearts every morning, but God's mercies and his faithfulness, well, they're available every morning. Friends, we don't sing great as our faithfulness. We sing great as his faithfulness. CCBC, we can trust God with the mission he has given to us as a local church and as individual Christians. And the different places of work, family, and ministry you were spread out through throughout the week. Do you know why God can be trusted? Because he'll never lie to you. Your boss will lie to you. Your spouse will lie to you. Your friends will lie to you. Your church members can lie to you. Your neighbors can lie to you. But God never lies. Friends, if you ever doubt God's love for you or whether he can be trusted, Go back to the cross. He promised to send a Messiah, and he did. And he promised to raise Jesus from the dead, and he did. Friends, he's already made the biggest promise he could ever make to us, and he's kept it. What other promises will he not keep in your life? God's word transforms every sinner God calls to himself in salvation. God's unchangeable character emboldens us to remain faithful to him. Friends, this is our saving and speaking God who is worthy of our worship. So as we close, what is the test of whether or not we as a local church or as individual Christians actually believe these things about God? The test of whether or not we believe the power of God's word and that God never changes is how faithful we are to proclaim his word and encourage each other to obey it. John MacArthur makes this very plain when he writes this. The Lord expresses his rule in his church insofar as the scripture is preached, explained, applied, and obeyed. To diminish the dominating role of scripture in the life of the church is to treat the Lord of the church as if his revelation were optional. It is nothing short of mutiny. And the seriousness of such revolt cannot be comprehended. 
non-biblical ministry, non-expository preaching, and non-doctrinal teaching usurp Christ's headship, silencing his voice to his sheep. That kind of devastating approach steals the mind of Christ away from the body of Christ, builds indifference towards his word, and quenches the work of his spirit. It removes protection from error and sin, eliminates transcendence and clarity, cripples worship, and sows seeds of compromise. It deflects the honor due to the true head of the church, and the Lord does not take kindly to those who would steal his glory. Paul knew who he belonged to and what God had called him to do. Titus knew who he belonged to and what God had called him to do. Beloved, do you know who you belong to? Do you know what mission God has called you to fulfill? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we consider the book of Titus over the next four weeks, I pray that each dear brother and sister in Christ here would explore these pages and consider what is the mission you've given each one of us. What are the various callings you've given us on how to teach sound doctrine and confront error? Lord, I pray that we at CCBC would be a church that models after what we see in Scripture. I pray that sound doctrine would be the norm and not the exception from our dear members' lives. And Lord, we do pray that you would protect us from error and falsehood, folly and sin. Lord, use each one of us to cause one another to grow and mature. And Lord, remind us again, you are the one who saves. You are the one who ultimately opens the hearts. You are the one who is drawing people through the message we proclaim. Lord, I pray that would not cause us to be lazy, but rather faithful and courageous. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.